Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Brad Cohen, Senior Vice Provost for Instructional Innovation at Ohio University, and we will be discussing various trends in higher education that will affect the nature of teaching and learning for our future students. Dr. Cohen joined Ohio just over a year ago as the Senior Vice Provost for Instructional Innovation. His interest in instructional innovation dates to his earlier efforts as a graduate student in philosophy, where he experimented with pedagogical forms that was then in an emerging Internet world. In his capacity at, at the University of Minnesota as head of the Center for Learning and Innovation in the Provost's Office and as the Associate CIO for Academic Technology, he was focused on helping faculty experiment in their courses and programs in a variety of high- and low-tech ways. At Ohio, he is leading a variety of initiatives, including a focus on exploring alternatives to costly textbooks, new learning space designs, expanding distance learning efforts, and much more. He has multiply published and has presented widely on issues related to learning innovations in higher education. His most recent contribution is in the forward to a forthcoming book on active learning classrooms. Brad, welcome to Teaching Matters. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here. I'm glad that you're here. So, uh, I've been around universities for a long time, and you have what I think is probably the coolest title that I've ever heard, Senior Vice Provost for Instructional Innovation. Can you talk a little bit about what that title means and sort of what that position represents at a, at a university like Ohio University? Sure. Uh, so innovation has has become a buzzword of sorts, I think, for our generation. Uh, change is really a uh, persistent feature of higher ed. Uh, people think that – and p- some people claim higher ed hasn't changed in 200 years or, or more since the time of Plato. But in fact – uh, higher ed has been undergoing change since its inception. Uh, and there are major moments of upheaval uh, in, in the history of uh, American higher ed institutions. Uh, one thinks of the land-grant institutions, uh, the uh, emergence of the GI Bill, uh, and uh, the, the campus uh, eruptions in the late 60s and 70s. These things cause us to reconsider in fundamental ways the structures and practices at our institutions. Today, we face some extraordinary challenges. Uh, As many people know, uh, funding uh, is very, very tight in higher ed. Uh, Increasingly, students and families are asked to bear the cost of that education. Those are the the difficult, dark storms on the horizon that, that cause us to think about what we're doing here. The more positive forces that are at work are about education. We know now more than we've ever known uh, regarding how human beings learn. And that needs to be incorporated into our practices in fundamental and deep ways. And that gives rise to new opportunities for us to, to do our job better. So innovation is, is right now an important feature of what we do in our institution. We have to move quickly. We have to move smartly at a time when it's not clear where we move forward. So the fact that your position is in the provost's office, that seems like that's a signal of a shift. I mean, I, I think that it would be fair to say that universities have tried to innovate, you know, historically. But the fact that now provosts around the country are saying, hey, I, I need somebody that's directly in my office that focuses on academic innovation, that, that seems to me like there's a shift in an understanding of the importance of innovation. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. I think it's, it's, it's a signal that provosts have realized the importance and centrality to their mission uh, and to their office's responsibility. 
responsibility. I also think it's it's a, a, a fact that innovation in its most recent form emerged from IT. Uh, technology was really a driving force. About 15 years ago, academic technology began to emerge as a thing. Nobody knew what an academic technologist was instructional designer, what's that? Mm -hmm. These things emerged in our IT environments, which historically tended to report uh, into the administrative side of the uh, institution. So the provosts now have, have realized this isn't going away. And in fact, it's moving toward the central, a central part of how we operate uh, academically. And so they need to have some stake in this as well. Now, you said that uh, obviously technology is a big component of this, but you also said a few minutes earlier that we know a lot more about learning than we ever have before. Do, do you think that innovation is broader than just the, the technologies that we use? Uh, is it also other aspects of teaching and learning? No question. Uh, my uh, the, the last 15 years I've been working in IT, but my passion and, and, and my history is in humanities, in fact. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we need to be thinking about how we reshape our learning environments fundamentally. Technology has a role to play, but it's not the only dimension that we need to consider here. Uh, learning spaces are a critical feature uh, for us to be thinking about. How we design spaces, how we use the, the uh, social and natural landscapes around our institutions, uh, how we integrate students' uh, lived experiences into the formal curriculum. These are all ways in which we need to think about innovating, in, and those can be in low-tech uh, ways that are very interesting, where we embed students in community and have them serving community in a deep way as part of their learning experience. Those don't need to be tech-rich or tech-driven at all. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to a, a point that you made that there are a variety of forces that is making the need for innovation perhaps greater now uh, than than it was before, maybe arguably not. But but if you think about you know things like budgets, uh, the changing demographics of our students, what do you see as being some of the central drivers that is really press pressing the need for innovation? Well, I think there are many. The the there are certainly what you've mentioned. Our, our student demographics are changing dramatically. Uh, budgets have changed dramatically. But I think uh, we are also experiencing new forms of competition. Uh, that, that higher ed is now being disrupted, uh, to use the language of the day, in ways that are really compelling us to, to rethink our fundamental business model. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't keep raising tuition on students and families and expect that to be a winning strategy for us. Innovation occurs in the space where, where need meets limit. And so it's, it's really important for us to see our limits and figure out how we better educate our students better educate more students in new ways without raising the price uh, beyond anyone's means. When uh, we started uh, this this radio series, Teaching Matters, one of the central issues that I was most interested in is the fact that our student demographics are changing. And, and so as we think about the millennial and then post-millennial students, uh, I think they're different, obviously, than the students that were part of my and your generation. They're different than the students that I first started teaching uh, when I became a professor. What do you think the characteristics are of the millennial and perhaps post-millennial students as best as we can guess that makes them a different type of student entering our classroom? I think it's always dangerous. Uh, I, I love the question. I think it's always dangerous to think about students as a as a mob and, mm -hmm. and to try and to try to talk about them as a singularity because they're 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 so very different in their uh -huh. in their unique uh, abilities. I do think, however, that students today. Uh, have an expectation of engagement and of purpose in their work that is maybe atypical. They, they expect 
uh, to know and be served by institutions and helping aid them in what they want to accomplish. They are they have they have desires and interests to make change in the world that is around them in ways that I think are maybe atypical from a historical perspective. Students expected to be mentored and patient until they achieved a certain level of uh, respect and maturity. Today, you have eight-year-olds who are leading international fundraising uh, initiatives. So by the time they come here, they are expecting to be equipped to do more of that at a larger scale. And they don't want to take a step back and sit down in, in the back of a, of a lecture hall and be talked at. They can get more information in real time, more effectively for them by Googling it. So we have to think about fundamentally reshaping the relationship between us and our students to, to accept that and acknowledge that. I think that's a great point. You know, one of the, uh, one of the, the memes that we have of, of college students as professors, you know, we think about the passive students sitting out in the classroom. And I know you and I both have uh, daughters about the same age. And I would never describe you know, my daughter and her friends is being passive. Now, that doesn't mean that I always recognize how they're being active, right, as, right. as an adult. But I wouldn't describe them as being passive. They have very clear um, things that they want to accomplish. And, 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 you know, part of being a parent for me and a, and a teacher is trying to figure out what those things are and connect with those. I think that's a challenge uh, and, and a reason why trying to innovate the academic experiences, I think, is so important so that that connection can be drawn. Uh, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a great challenge for an individual. And now it's compounded when you're facing a class of 30 or 50 or 100 students because each of them is an individual and trying to craft a learning experience that is meaningful to each of them as that individual they are is very, very difficult. That's where some of the most exciting innovation is in fact happening. Yeah. Let's switch topics um, and, and go to um, back to the technology issue. Um, I know that you mentioned that uh, a lot of the idea about innovation grow out of uh, the rise of technology and, and academia. Of course, one of the things that is, is growing significantly that we're all exposed to is online learning, uh, which is a part of, of, of what you uh, work with at Ohio University. Can you talk about sort of the role of online learning in higher education? I know that that differs greatly from one institution to another, but what's your take on how online learning is functioning in the higher education space now and then maybe projecting where it's going to go? I, th I think when online learning emerged, it was uh, new and people were afraid of it and they weren't sure it was real or legitimate. Uh, is this a correspondence course only worse because now people can cheat more easily? What is going on here? Um, there was a huge amount of research uh, devoted to trying to figure out is this as good as face-to-face -face education? We're past that conversation now. Online learning is a core part of what institutions like ours must do. It is part of the environment within which we deliver uh, learning experiences. In my view, online learning is like choosing a certain kind of classroom. It's a certain environment in which we choose to meet our students. We can do that in a large lecture hall. We can do that in an active learning classroom or in a small seminar space. We can do it out in the field. Online learning is one of those spaces that we use to meet our students and engage them. And you'll find in that environment good and bad teaching just as you'll find it everywhere else. Uh, what's interesting to me and to us is where is it good and what makes it good and how can we get more of that going? Is that, is that answering the question? It then? does. Yeah. And, and, you know, we may have listeners that's never, uh, you know, taken an online course. Uh, what, 
I know that it's evolved so much. I mean, when when online courses first began, uh, it really was sort of like what you described, where it was a correspondence course. But it's it's changed so much, not just because of the technology, but but more our recognition of how the technology and the learning experience has to change. What what do you see as being some of the best practices for online education now that is trying to be used to serve the students in a learning experience that's productive. You're absolutely right that historically online learning was like a, a digital correspondence course. Uh, and the tools have evolved uh, dramatically, but so has our understanding. Online learning today, when it's well-designed, first and foremost, involves a team. So uh, faculty don't try to do this by themselves. This is where instructional designers come in as experts who can help them understand the technology uh, and how that technology can be used to meet their needs. So it's really important, I think, to to surround yourself with the right kind of expertise. Beyond that, we know that uh, good learning is engaged learning. And so designing the learning environment in ways that engage students with one another, engage students with the material, and engage students with the instructor, those those forms of engagement are critical to success in, in really high-quality online environments. It's interesting. In, in my college, we have uh, a couple of faculty members that I, that idea of engagement is so critical, right, both in a face-to-face class and in an online class. And, um, you know, when online courses first started, a lot of faculty members would use essentially discussion boards as a way to, to promote engagement. That still is a very effective tool. I have some faculty that are experimenting with some uh, uh, two-way audio video, uh, sometimes synchronous, where they can talk at the same time, sometimes asynchronous, where it's more like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a discussion that takes place like email where it's, it's one after the other, but maybe not at the same time. And I, I find that really interesting because it's really trying to make that engagement be at the forefront of the learning experience where it probably wasn't like that for students in previous iterations of e-learning. And I, I just find that really fascinating. Yes, I think, I think many... In- Courses traditionally and instructors have approached their job as trying to transmit information. We know from all of our survey data on students for uh, two generations now, students and faculty have a deep understanding that education is information transfer. Mm -hmm. And this is a miss – in my view, this is missing the point of education. But if you think of it that way, my job as a faculty member is to deliver information. So I lecture or I put my lecture notes online or I record myself talking and you consume it and then you reflect back that you have received this information. But an engaged model changes that in fundamental ways. And it's about co-discovery or or supporting and facilitating discovery by students. Media-rich components, like instead of having written discussion, having audio or video discussion, those kinds of interactions, that media-rich environment is, first of all, what people expect uh, in the 21st century these days, but it also deepens that engagement. If I am interacting with you in a face-to-face environment as opposed to a text-mediated environment uh, over time, it's a much more the, – the, the, there's actual research on, on this notion of psychological distance. Mm-hmm. And I feel more distant from you if I am mediated by text in an asynchronous way than if you and I are having a live chat uh, over video. It's a real difference. And that difference manifests itself in the level of motivation students have to commit to the course and in their engagement and understanding of the material. 
While we're on the topic of engagement, but moving away from the online learning environment, I know that one of the initiatives that you've been heavily involved in, not only here, but in your previous role at the University of Minnesota, is uh, thinking about the physical classroom spaces in addition to the online spaces. But I'm really interested in your thoughts about how the types of actual classrooms that we build um, have maybe been rooted in a model that has been restrictive and what some of the new possibilities are. Uh, I have to confess that that my interest in space uh, is probably uh, exceeding all other interests at this point. <laughs> I, I, I just think from my, from my last four years at Minnesota, the research team I led and the discoveries we made about the importance of space have just has just transformed my appreciation for this conversation. We, I think, historically designed rooms um, really with an eye toward maximizing the amount of students we could put in the, in the room and doing it in a way that would make it last as long as we can make it last. We're going to build a, a lecture hall. We want that thing to last 50 years because we want to make that investment matter. Mm-hmm. The calculation has changed fundamentally. Space impacts behavior in very deep ways. And we all know this. We all know when we walk into a building or a room in our house that's a favorite room, there's something about the color or the furniture or, or, the, or the amount of natural light. There are things about the space that change us, that impact us in deep ways. This is no different than a, than a learning classroom. We know from our research that active learning classrooms compel change. Faculty and students will talk differently. They'll interact differently. They'll learn differently depending on the design of a space. And so I think this is one of the most significant conversations for us to be having as an institution. What kind of spaces do we need? How can we make those spaces uh, have the right kind of impact on students and faculty? And how can we do that in a sustainable way? I think the conversation has changed from how can we build this to last 50 50 years to what can we build for the next five or 10-year horizon as we learn more and more about the relationship between space and learning. I think that's a huge area for us to be exploring. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned the phrase active learning classroom. And of course, that's something that that we constructed as part of our renovation for the Scripps College of Communication. Can you... uh, Use it, recognizing we have an audio-only medium here, can you try to describe for listeners what an active learning cra- classroom would look like if you walked into one? So an active learning classroom is a classroom that is designed with a number of features that are, that are becoming kind of a standard. Uh, so most active learning classrooms have round tables instead of rows of chairs. They have a lot of technology available or technology affordances in the space. So each table will typically have a monitor associated with it and the ability for students to plug in a laptop or mobile device, connect a mobile device to display on that, on that, uh, on that monitor. Uh, there will be an instructor station positioned somewhere in the room, but not obviously at the front, because in an active learning classroom, there is no front. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways in which there's this fundamental change. Faculty are not at the head of the room with students passively in the back of the room listening. It's, it's, everyone is engaged everywhere in new ways. There's also a lot of writing surfaces. So the idea of these rooms is to promote group work, collaboration, discussion, uh, and and, uh, a pursuit of understanding in a very active way through problem solving as opposed to uh, lecture and and, uh, understanding of, of what's being said. Right. Now, these rooms are not brand new. There's, uh, I, I know that there's a legacy of them at the University of Minnesota, North Carolina State, some other universities that got into building these classrooms um, you know, a, a decade or so ago. 
but they are relatively new across higher education. Has there been enough evidence accumulated now that we start to have an understanding of whether these uh, new, newly constructed rooms around this active learning format, does it have an impact on students' learning and their experiences? I think the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, and we've, we've uh, the, the, as I said, the research team that, that uh, J.D. Walker really has been leading at Minnesota, uh, he has assembled a series of experiments with faculty partners to really tease out what, what are the possible things that can happen in this space that are to the good. And we have discovered in quasi-experimental design after quasi-experimental design that these spaces are extraordinary in helping students learn, even when faculty and students don't really plan for the space. Now, if they do plan, all of the outcomes turn out even better. Uh, but you can, throw a, you can throw a faculty member into the space and the faculty member can even want to do the same traditional lecture-based uh, approach that they, that they used in a lecture hall, and things get better. Students learn more. The achievement gap closes. So students who, who would come in with an expectation of a, of a lower performance actually close that gap because things happen in that room that, that conduce to learning for everyone. And I could go on. I mean, they're, 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 I'm really excited about the book that's coming out. Mm -hmm. The research results uh, at the data, by the date of publishing were already um, well uh, expressed in that book. And I'm not trying to promote the book. I don't have a stake in it. Uh, but I do, I do think that the work there is worth reading. And I think that we are going to be discovering as we move forward even more and better ways to understand how to design to help students learn. Mm -hmm. And just one last question on this topic. The, the, you mentioned that if you plan for the room uh, from the teacher and the student standpoint, you even get more maximized gains in learning and, and, and um, outcomes that are important. If you, if you plan it well, it, does that class have a different pedagogy behind it than you would if it was a traditional lecture class? And, and how might that pedagogy be different? So the, the, certainly if you design for the space that you're in, you can match the pedagogy with the space in ways that are good for everyone. Uh, if you try to do active learning class, if you try to conduct an active learning class in a fixed seat lecture hall, tiered lecture hall, that's really not going to work. It's very difficult. So you're fighting against the design. Now, there can be ways to act, to be more active in a lecture environment. But if you if you think about here's the space I'm in, here are the limitations and affordances of that space. I will take that into account as I design my class. That kind of process leads to much better outcomes. It, it just takes advantage of what you can, and it, and it appreciates the limits that there are. But in an active learning classroom, if you are prepared for it, you end up really thinking about how to take advantage of a seat of nine students, uh, typically in groups of three, doing some small group work, then table group work, and then whole classwork, and you, uh, you take advantage of the media to pull ideas from students forward, to challenge student ideas. You use the whiteboards and do a walk around with the students so that they're getting off their, off their butts and they're, they're, <laughs> they're moving around the classroom and engaging with ideas. These are ways in which you can, you can lead them to generating world-changing ideas. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why we shouldn't expect our freshman students to come in to a class in their first in their first day and leave at the end of that semester with ideas that are worth considering. We have this notion that they're, that they're not ready. 
And I think that that's a mistake. If we set the stage in the right way and we support them, they can produce some remarkable things. My guest is Dr. Brad Cohen, Senior Vice Provost for Instructional Innovation at Ohio University. Brad, before the break, we were talking about uh, classrooms. We were talking about online education. We were talking about innovation and how you were leading uh, those efforts at Ohio University. All of these things point to the fact that we're trying to innovate the university setting to disrupt what we've been doing. And, and we're not the only ones trying to disrupt it. There are a lot of forces that's really trying to disrupt what is the traditional model of higher education. Can you talk about some of those other disruptive efforts that, uh, that, you know, that we're encountering and seeing? Yes, I think, I think that we are in, a, in an age of disruption right now. And I think that, that there is a tremendous amount of energy being directed at higher ed as an industry to try to change it in, in uh, fundamental ways. Uh, to be very crass, this is a, a trillion-dollar industry. And there are interests who want some of that pie. And so we are experiencing a kind of uh, orchestrated uh, disruption that I think in the history of higher ed is pretty unique. And uh, so in Silicon Valley, lots of venture capitalists are funding uh, disruptors, uh, uh, ideas that are aimed at parceling or, or kind of unbundling higher education in fundamental ways and taking parts of it onto uh, new paths uh, so that student needs can be met in new ways outside of traditional higher education contexts. There are other disruptors who are, who are trying to influence higher ed toward a greater good. So the Gates Foundation, uh, Lumina Foundation, these are, these are entities that are interested in working with higher ed to try to transform practice in deep ways, to take advantage of the data that flows through our institutions so that we can understand our students and pivot to meet their needs more quickly and, and more effectively. So those are examples of, of, of uh, maybe at a high level the ways in which we're experiencing mm-hmm. disruption. But uh, there's no question that, in, that there's real interest in trying to understand how we might take advantage of data to understand learners. The way, we, the way we treat patients in a hospital now has been transformed by our analysis uh, and understanding of individual human uh, of, uh, chemistry, physiology, biochemistry. The DNA profile of a human being in the near term is going to be something that, key, that, we, that we configure medicines to meet. Uh, people are interested in can we do that with learners? Is there a way for mm-hmm. us to get a DNA of learners and change the way we, re, we interact with them to meet that particular learner's needs. There's adaptive technologies that are emerging. So textbook industry is being transformed and disrupted itself. So how can we, how can we think about um, smart textbooks that, that can respond to students' input in ways that help drive students toward learning that they need to fill gaps that are revealed by various kinds of assessments? So those are just a couple of examples in, in the ways in which we're, we're seeing disruption, both, both from external competitors and from, from agents who want to see higher ed move in a new direction. You know, it's interesting as I think about disruption, one of the uh, terms that that I heard used a few years ago that was very popular was MOOCs. Can you describe what MOOCs are and talk about them as uh, those th- that, that approach as a disruptive approach and then maybe what's happened to it? So uh, MOOCs, MOOC stands for Massive Open Online uh, Course or Curriculum. Uh, and the 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 nature of these things was to try to provide an educational experience, a course, to 
a massive audience of students. And this emerged uh, at MIT and at Stanford nearly simultaneously and has grown in a number of different directions. The There was a lot of hype about this. It hit the press. New York Times had articles. This was the end of higher ed as we knew it because now suddenly we can – can a single faculty member can educate 100,000 students, not not 100 or 200 or 300 in a large lecture hall, but a limitless number of students from a global population. That changes everything. And on top of it all, it's free. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that didn't that didn't work. Uh, you know, that the, the hype didn't live up to its expectations. And this is something that those of us who have been steeped in technology disruption literature for for a while knew and could and, and predicted predicted. Um, Gartner, in fact, uh, every year publishes its education hype cycle. So they've actually codified the path that that things like MOOCs tend to take. Mm -hmm. There's this initial trigger that leads to a peak of inflated expectations, and then it plummets to the trough of disillusionment. And then if it's a good technology or a good uh, innovation or or, uh, change that has a place in the pantheon of of ways we serve students, then it emerges onto a plateau of productivity. MOOCs haven't made it, and they may not. It's an open question yet whether they will. Uh, and uh, I think everyone understands now that that, that was not uh, a viable and really, really may not be a viable way forward. So the, the MOOCs are struggling to figure out – the MOOC industry is struggling to figure out how to monetize the MOOC, how to make it work, how to sustain it. Uh, and they know that they have huge dropout rates. Um, where is it going to fit, if anywhere, in the future uh, landscape for educating students? It's an example of, of, of hyped – in, uh, innovations that may or may not work. So our job, I think, is to manage the hype. Uh, <laughs> we want to experiment. We want to see these things emerge, and we want to consider carefully how we, as an as an institution, might benefit from engaging with it, and what we can learn from it, and whether or not it has a value for us. That's those are some of the key ways in which we want to play in this space, but cautiously. Right. You know, one of the other disruptive technologies that you were talking about just a moment ago was the adaptive technology and the ability to use data to sort of guide a more personalized approach to instruction. And it just strikes me that there's been a theme um, in that statement and then an answer that you had before the break where you were talking about how the millennial and post-millennial students really really strive for a more personalized educational experience. And so you, you really start to see how there's a potential for a disruptive technology to be coming in line right about the same time that we have students where it fits that you know, again, not to talk about them as a mob, but it fits sort of the needs of those students at the moment that we need it. And it'll be exciting, I think, to see how how the uh, the ability for us as educators to understand and adapt to our students will really guide what, you know, we do as educators going into the future. For, for many years, I was uh, – after I uh, moved out of my faculty position into into a more administrative role, I, I was doing the work of an instructional designer. And I have a – I'm cautiously optimistic about technology. I, I think a, a healthy a healthy caution is in order because technology is very expensive. Uh, it's very costly in terms of time and effort to to integrate effectively into, into learning. And it's important not to let the tail wag the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to use technology for its own sake. We want to know very clearly what we want to accomplish as teachers, what we want our students to accomplish, and then figure out how and to what degree technology has a role to play. I still think that the unplugged seminar has an 
as a critically important place uh, in in our in our environment uh, as educators. But I also think students are going to really bristle at at having to sit into in, in a classroom listening to somebody for seven or eight hours a day. Uh, that's a weird thing to be ha- to have happen in, in the age of Google. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's be honest. And so we we have to think about what's the value that we're offering to our students, and how are we how are we giving them something that is uh, something they can't get from from that environment. Brad, I've heard you uh, speak on many different occasions, and one of the terms that you use a lot is mission merging. What do you mean by that? Uh, one of the things I bristled at in my first faculty position was the encounter I had uh, as I was nearing the end of my first year uh, regarding promotion and tenure. And the idea that I had to divide my time between teaching, research, and engagement or service and that there was a formula that I had to live by was something I really was struck by and it wasn't – it didn't sit well with me. I, I, in my own work, sought ways to merge that mission, to, to, to execute and pursue projects that served all three of those masters. Uh, and I think when we design courses that do that, that advance our research as faculty – that serve our community and that meet our students' needs as learners, those environments are powerful in ways that are uh, quite striking. I had the the great privilege of working with faculty at Minnesota who did this in their work, and it was really extraordinary to see. It took a long time to plan and to make happen, but there are really interesting ways in which your disciplinary research can be driven forward without doing a disservice to students and, and while serving your community. If we can get even two of those three working in concert, we are moving powerfully in a direction that serves uh, each of those audiences in really interesting and powerful ways. Do you think that the uh, the do you think that faculty are coming? You know, the new faculty that are coming to the ranks are more oriented towards this convergence of the teaching, research, and service, or is this something that we need to really think about, like in our PhD and graduate programs? you know, even earlier to help start orienting. Because I think there's undeniable, you know, there's an undeniable argument that the more you can get all of your fish going in the same direction, you know, the more powerful your pool would be, right? And so are our faculty coming in oriented towards that, or do we need to do a better job of of training them and mentoring them? Uh, I would... I would guess. I don't really know, but I would guess that we are not there yet. Yeah. Uh, I think that I think that uh, one of the things that makes innovation and change in higher ed difficult is that our institutions are deeply traditional, and there's good reason for that. You don't want to throw knowledge out every other week, right? You want to conserve and preserve uh, and maintain a kind of order in our theoretical landscape. And uh, it's not possible to do in every discipline. Some, you know, we, we have researchers who are working on you know federally funded grants in you know very you know very archaic uh, areas of uh, astrophysics. You're not going to get first year undergraduate students to contribute in any meaningful way to to the advance of that of that research agenda. That's not to say it's not possible to move toward merging there, but it's much more difficult in some areas than others. I think that we also have promotion and tenure processes that inhibit this kind of mission merging effort, that it's, they don't know how to count it, right? How to, but we have these three buckets and we're supposed to you know, look at your work in terms of those three buckets. It's, you have to make an argument and you have to make that argument before you commit to the project, while you're involved in the project, and while you're going up for promotion and tenure. So I think this is both a both and. We have to start thinking about how we prepare our graduate students for this and how we, as an institution, embrace it. 
Very good. Uh, one, one last question uh, that I want to ask. Uh, if, if you were going back to teaching a class uh, next semester and, and you could design it any way that you wanted to, what, what would be the features of that class? What would it look like? I, I think uh, the first thing I would do is be very explicit, much more explicit than I was when I began as a teacher about what I want my students to learn and know and be able to do. Then I would figure out how I'm going to reveal to them and to me that they're making progress along those dimensions. Then I would figure out what to do. What can I do to help them succeed in those assessments and demonstrate that they've achieved the outcomes that, that I've set for them? I would also create some space for them to help form formulate those outcomes. So getting them to buy in to the goal that they're after uh, is, is a critical part of it as well. Having said all that, what I would really love to see if I, if I were in the classroom again is as much authenticity as I could muster. I think authentic learning, authentic assessment, these are things that, that make uh, students genuinely transformative in their experience and in their attitude. So if we can create classroom experiences that are deeply authentic, that, that make them think they're doing real work that really uh, impacts the world, then I think we that, that's the kind of course I would like to create, one that keeps them up at night because they're not trying to figure out what is the question on the test and how I'm going to get the right answer, but how am I going to change the world in the way that I've been asked to change the world or challenged to change the world? That's what I'd like to create. That's great. Uh, so, you know, kind of by way of summary, you know, one of the impressions that I get in our talk uh, today is that, you know, we, we know that our students are changing. That's always been the case. And, and maybe they're changing more rapidly now than we've experienced before. But uh, that's certainly happening. And what's exciting to hear you talk about is how higher education institutions can be intentional in trying to understand that change and trying to adapt its practices to better meet the needs of those students. I think I think at the end of the day, that's sort of what our fundamental mission is, right, is trying to figure out who are our students and how can we best meet their needs. Absolutely. So, well, Brad, I want to thank you for giving us your time uh, today to be a part of Teaching Matters. Uh, it's been great to get to know you while you've been on campus and very excited to see uh, the innovations that Ohio University will have under your leadership uh, going into the future. And uh, welcome to Athens, Ohio. You've been here for a year, but it's been a quick year. Yep. And <laughs> so, well, we, want to, we also want to thank the listeners for listening to Teaching Matters. This, this program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Special thanks also to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WUB Public Media, thank you for your listening, and have a good day. Good day.